Our scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, beginning at verse 22, page 1,228 in the Pew Bible, 1,228, John 6, 22, and reading through verse 34. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered that, the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people, therefore, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, we take up a study of the Gospel of John again after a number of weeks' absence from it during the Advent season. And I thought I'd begin with just a little review. The Gospel of John is divided into two main sections, the first uh, 12 chapters dealing with Jesus' ever-widening public ministry, where John displays Jesus as the uh, eternal second person of the Trinity, the glorious Son of God who was made man and has come to dwell among us, uh, showing us the signs that he performed to reveal himself uh, to the crowds. And uh, as Jesus reveals himself to this ever-widening circle, we also see uh, Jesus being rejected increasingly by those to whom he is revealed. The second part of the, of the Gospel of John, beginning of chapter 13, deals with uh, the private ministry of Jesus to his disciples, uh, his private instruction to them, uh, the farewell discourse in the upper room, just before the crucifixion, and then his, uh, then it recounts also his crucifixion and resurrection, but then again his private instruction to them uh, after his uh, resurrection and just before his ascension. 
So you have the, the public ministry in the first 12 chapters, the, the private ministry in the, in the last chapters interspersed or uh, around the, uh, the death and the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And we're in that first section, the, the ever-widening public ministry of Jesus, beginning with, his, uh, uh, with John the Baptist's declaration, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, John's disciples leaving, some of his disciples leaving to follow Jesus. They follow him uh, uh, for a little bit and then go back fishing. But then he comes and calls them to full-time following him. And that's where we are now. And he has based his ministry in Capernaum. And uh, that uh, is uh, where we are now in these events, uh, the events in the Galilean ministry where he... uh, established his Capernaum as his home base because that's where most of his uh, disciples were from so that they could be near their families while they were also working with Jesus. And we, uh, we left off with uh, Jesus on the other side of the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. Capernaum's on the west side. Uh, Jesus was on the other side, the east side, in a desolate place where he Uh, fed the disciples, and uh, our text begins with, on the next day, that is the day after the miracle, and uh, here we find a crowd searching for Jesus, and I want to uh, consider a number of things with you about this search for Jesus. Uh, They were searching for Jesus, and uh, four things in particular, and Before I tell you what those four things are, let me just say that, uh, by way of aside here, um, I've never liked putting my points in the bulletin because uh, they're always under development. Even after I give them to the church secretary, uh, I continue to work on the sermon, and that was the case this week. And now my points that I have now, the four points, don't correspond exactly to what you have printed in front of you. Uh, That's one reason why I don't like putting them in the bulletin. Another reason has to do with what uh, one lady once told me. Uh, Early early in my ministry, I I did a pulpit exchange with the minister of the Bradenton, Florida Christian Reformed Church, and it wasn't my habit to put points in the bulletin then, and I didn't. And a lady came up to me after the service and complained that I hadn't put my points in the bulletin. And I said, well, why do you like them there? And she says, well, I like them because I always know when the minister is going to end. And that gave me another reason why I don't like to put points in the bulletin. Uh, I don't think Paul did it, uh, but I will do it. I will try my best. And, uh, but if you see some variance from time to time, know that the sermon is under development right up to the point of delivery. <laughs> and uh, therefore, it's not always the same. And that's the case with my first point today. I want to first first speak to you about the circumstances, not the reason, but the circumstances surrounding this search. Secondly, the the motive for the search. Thirdly, Jesus' uh, rebuke of that motive, telling them uh, what they should be, why they should be searching for him. And finally, uh, Jesus' call to faith in him as the bread of life. Well, first of all, let's consider the circumstances uh, regarding this search. And The reason I want to speak about the circumstances is because John's account of of this search for Jesus is very brief, and it's easy to get confused because 
John is the last of the gospel writers, and I believe that he is presuming that his audience already knows the events from the other gospels. And so he can just skim through it very quickly and not give you all the details because he assumes you know the details from the other gospels. But uh, we have only John's gospel in front of us this morning. So let me just give you a little background to what's going on here. What's going on here is that Jesus was in Capernaum when he received the news of the death of John the Baptist. And this greatly troubled him. And I always think that this is a beautiful picture of of the humanity of Jesus, that he he grieved the loss of John the Baptist, and he wanted to be alone with his disciples. When we've suffered bereavement, we want the support of those uh, who knew the the deceased and uh, uh, who are our family and friends who can encourage us. We don't want to see a lot of strangers when we're uh, suffering bereavement, and that was the case with Jesus. And so, Uh, his disciples have boats available to them in Capernaum. They get into one of the boats, and they sail across the sea to the east side to a desolate place. Uh, People, uh, scholars identify some, uh, an area on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, about six miles across, straight across the lake uh, to that place. It wouldn't take them very long to get there with several men rowing hard, uh, they could be there uh, in before noon if they left uh, in the morning. And uh, Jesus wanted to be there alone with his disciples. But the crowd in Capernaum did not want to leave Jesus alone. And we're told that they followed Jesus on foot, walking around the north end of the lake, uh, uh, searching for him, perhaps catching sight of the boat from time to time. And uh, they caught up with Jesus later that day. He had a few hours alone with his disciples, but then the crowd caught up to him. Uh, they uh, Probably a 10-mile walk uh, for them. And uh, mid-afternoon, perhaps, Jesus sees this crowd approaching, and we're told that he had compassion on the crowd. He had compassion on them, and they were coming with families. You know, 5,000 men plus women and children. Why would, why would women and children come along as well? Well, because they needed healing. There, there were probably sick children, and no mother is going to let a sick child out of her sight, and a father has to come along to uh, support them, and, and so they bring their sick children. Or maybe it's the wife who's sick, and the husband is there for her support, but because husband and wife go, the children have to go along as well. Or even if it's the husband who's sick, uh, Uh, The wife needs to support him, and because the husband and wife are there, the children have to go along. So you have these family units uh, coming, uh, a difficult 10-mile hike around the north end of the lake to discover where Jesus is. They discover where he is. He has compassion on them, and he heals them. And uh, uh, late in the day, uh, toward evening, the disciples say to Jesus, Send the people away. They didn't know they had to walk so far to find you. They didn't bring food with them. Let them go to the neighboring villages to get something to eat. And that's when Jesus says, no, uh, we're going to feed them. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish and uh, multiplies it for 5,000 men plus women and children. And everybody is aware of this miracle. They see the 12 basketfuls of leftovers collected. And uh, everyone is amazed And they want to take Jesus by force and make him king. 
And Jesus wants nothing to do with that. He wants to get out of there quickly as possible, and uh, he gives instructions to his disciples, get in the boat, get out of here, go back home, and uh, he goes up into the mountain to pray. Well, the crowd is uh, (laughs) well-fed and not about to hike 10 miles uh, in the dark uh, back to Capernaum, so they bed down under the stars for the night. And our text begins with the words, on the following day. On the following day, they get up in the morning, and the first thing they do is look for Jesus. They know the disciples went away in in the boat, the only boat that was there. And they know that Jesus wasn't in the boat, so they assume that Jesus would still be in the vicinity, and they start searching for him, and they can't find him. And then some boats from Tiberias show up. Now, scholars debate as to what uh, uh, caused those boats from Tiberias to uh, show up. Uh, There's two possible, uh, likely explanations. Uh, Fishermen go out and fish at night on the Sea of Galilee, and there was a storm that night. You remember that night was the night that uh, the disciples were rowing back to Capernaum, or to that vicinity, and uh, it got four or five miles when a big wind came up and uh, impeded their progress, and Jesus came to them walking on the water, and uh, got into the boat, and as soon as he got into the boat, they arrived at their destination on back on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. Well, there was a storm that night, and the fishermen are out at night. Maybe they got blown uh, over to this desolate area in the providence of God to provide transportation for these people. Uh, William Hendrickson uh, rejects that idea. He's, he's of the uh, mind that uh, Tiberius is very near Capernaum, the uh, News spread that a large crowd had left uh, on foot to follow Jesus around the lake. And the fishermen thought, uh, water taxi fees are better than fishing. Let's uh, go look for that crowd and uh, offer them uh, passage back to Capernaum so they don't have to walk all the way back. We will take them back very quickly by boat. Uh, That's the explanation that Hendrickson prefers. I'll let you choose which one you like the best or maybe come up with a different one. But God saw to it that there were boats there and uh, the crowd, many in the crowd, took the boats back to Capernaum. They arrived very shortly that morning and lo and behold, Jesus is there. And they are amazed. How did Jesus get here? They knew how the disciples got there, but they couldn't understand how Jesus could get there. If Jesus had, uh, he wouldn't have tried to walk in the dark. That would have been too dangerous on that path. But uh, if he had left that morning, he couldn't possibly be there by now. And so they are mystified with regard to Jesus and uh, come to them, to Jesus, uh, with this uh, question. You know, how did you get here? When did you get here? How long have you been here? Now, this question sort of implies that Jesus owes these people an explanation. It's sort of a proprietary question. We, we own you, Jesus. You're, you're here for us, and you owe us an explanation as to how you got here. Uh, it doesn't show a lot of respect for Jesus or standing in awe of him as some uh, great uh, person. They address him as rabbi, uh, an uh, honorary title, but... Uh, Very quickly in this chapter, they will begin to disagree with his teaching. So really that that doesn't show that their respect goes very deep for him. In fact, uh, not at all. And so Jesus uh, says to them, look, the reason you are looking for me 
is not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill. You ate of the loaves and were filled. That was the reason you're looking for me. Now, in saying that to them, he's, he's probably contradicting what they themselves are thinking. No, they're thinking, we're interested in miracles. Well, uh, and it so happened that uh, one of the miracles, the greatest miracle performed there, uh, that involved all of them, not just a miracle of healing for individuals, but a great miracle that involved all of them was this feeding. And, uh, but Jesus doesn't say miracles. He says signs. You're not following me because you saw signs. In other words, I know you saw miracles and you're interested in these miracles, but you, you missed the point of them. These are signs. These, these are events that have a meaning. They tell you something about me and they tell you something about my mission. And you're missing that entirely. And the only thing you're concerned about is your material needs. You're following me because you see me as someone who can service your earthly material needs, whether it's healing or food. That's why you're following me. And uh, he uh, uh, rebukes them uh, for that. The the miracles uh, had not been seen as as signs, uh, as a message of the gospel about Christ and his kingdom. They saw Miracles as something to uh, to make their lives easy. Now that uh, there's an important lesson in this for us, and that is that miracles of themselves uh, don't create genuine faith. Simply seeing a miracle will not create uh, genuine faith. There are a lot of people today who would say, "Well, I would believe in Jesus if I could see a miracle." If I could see a miracle, uh, I'll believe in him. Well, there were crowds of people who saw miracles who did not respond with genuine faith. They were certainly interested in Jesus and interested in Jesus meeting their earthly and material and temporal needs, but they did not have faith in him. They missed the, the, the meaning of Jesus entirely. And uh, it's an important lesson to remember because there are a number of religious leaders in the world today, uh, purportedly uh, uh, self-proclaimed Christian leaders, and there are uh, supposedly Christian movements that purport to be able to perform supernatural powers. And some of them claim that uh, they have to do that if they're to advance the cause of the gospel. We need supernatural powers. You know, uh, Charles Wimber, a vineyard movement uh, from uh, the 1980s, uh, said uh, the reason the gospel isn't powerful today and converting people is because we're not per- performing miracles. And he felt that he uh, had been gifted to perform miracles and that other people should uh, pray for the gift to perform miracles so that the gospel will have some power today. And uh, that that kind of thinking prevails in a number of uh, places, uh, even uh, beside the the vineyard movement. But uh, it's a false premise. Uh, Jesus performed greater miracles than anyone purports to be able to perform today, and yet the multitudes of people who saw them uh, rejected Jesus and did not come to genuine faith. 
There's another lesson, of course, here as well, and that is that you and I need to examine our own hearts and ask, why are you following Jesus? Why are you one who comes to a Christian church from week to week or listens to this service on the radio or watches on the Internet? What, what is your interest in Jesus based on? Are you looking to Jesus to make your present life easier and more comfortable or perhaps to get you out of some mess that you believe is no fault of your own? Are you using him to accomplish your agenda? One test you can test yourself with here is to ask yourself, when is it that you really pray, that you pray fervently, that you pray from the heart? Is it when you're full of gratitude and praise? Or is it the only time that you really pray is when you are in desperate need of something, when some trouble has come? Is that when you pray? Well, that could be very telling as to why you are following Jesus. They were interested in Jesus. They were searching for Jesus because they hoped he would make their life easier, because they, he hoped that they would, they would, he would feed them, that he would be their their doctor and their uh, food stamp program or whatever, their social welfare program to provide for their earthly and material needs. That's what they wanted of Jesus. And sadly, many in the world today, particularly the adherents of the health and wealth uh, gospel, they're going to Jesus for the same reason. And you and I are just as human as the people who are following those movements and just as susceptible to that false motive for following Jesus. And so Jesus rebukes that motive and tells them the right motive for following him. The right motive is this, do not labor for food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life. Now when he says do not labor, or it can be translated work, uh, it's the same word as translated work in the next two verses, Uh, do not labor, uh, do not work for food that perishes, Jesus is not saying here that you shouldn't go to work every day to earn a salary in order to go to the grocery store and buy your your food. He's not condemning our uh, earthly vocations by which we support our families. But rather, he's he's talking here about your priorities. Uh, Your priorities ought not to be simply material. But as Jesus says in another place, Seek first. Seek first. Make your first priority the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, these material things, will be taken care of. If you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, although here he says, but seek food which endures to eternal life. All earthly treasures perish. Moth and rust corrupt. Thieves break in and steal. steal. Don't set your heart on these things. But uh, they, they sustain your earthly existence, but they cannot give you eternal life. You need to seek those things which are above where Christ is. Colossians 3 verse 1. When he says, uh, seek food for eternal life, he's talking about life, a certain kind of life there. You know, the, the Greek have two words uh, for life, which are 
both translated by one English word, life. One Greek word is bios, uh, from which we get the word biology, the study of uh, physical life, uh, the human body, a chemical factory with all kinds of systems and functions. Uh, that's bios, life, uh, biology. The other uh, Greek word is zoe, uh, from which we get the uh, English word Zoe, a girl's name, uh, that refers not to uh, physical life, but quality of life, not to the material aspect of life, but to the uh, quality of our lives. And uh, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of uh, thankfulness and and so forth. You know, uh, one time my wife and I were uh, sitting in uh, the Edmonton airport waiting to get on uh, a flight that would take us back uh, here to the States, and uh, a flight or a ticket agent uh, came up to us and said, uh, may I see your boarding passes? And I thought, oh no, what, what problem is this going to be now? And she looked at the boarding passes and then said, would you like first class uh, seats today? And uh, I said, well, how much is that going to cost us? Oh, no charge. I, I can change you to first class if you like. And I said, yeah, we like. And uh, she gave us uh, first class boarding passes. And there we were sitting on the plane in first class with uh, my knees not uh, jammed up uh, into my chest, fearing that the person in front of me is going to lower his seat and uh, break my kneecaps. Uh, but uh, sitting with lots of room with uh, uh, free uh, beverages uh, served even before the flight takes off, and uh, thinking to myself, now, now this is living. <laughs> now this is living, you know. Uh, this is a quality of life that we don't experience very often. Uh, does that mean there was no, no uh, physical life back in coach or in basic economy where you don't get any of those uh, privileges? I don't know. There's plenty of biology going on back there. There's plenty of... Uh, uh, life functions going on back there, but the quality is so much better in uh, in first class. Well, Jesus is saying, I can give you quality life, quality life that endures forever. That's That ought to be our concern, and there is food for that. Now, uh, the crowd misunderstands him and uh, thinks that, uh, well, Okay, we're not supposed to do one kind of work. We must supposed to be doing another kind of work. Well, what, what work does God want us to do so that we can do what God wants us to do, the works of God? Uh, what kind of work are we supposed to do? Fully confident that whatever God might require of them, they'll just change direction. They'll do that. You know, we, we can do it. We can do whatever you want. Just tell us what you want us to do and we'll do it. And Jesus responds to this by saying, well, the work that God wants you to do is really no work at all. It's the work of faith, of believing in the one whom he has sent. Uh, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And uh, he's saying, you know, the work is simply stop working to earn your way into the favor of God and earn eternal life, but the way to eternal life is faith in me. Well, the crowd doesn't necessarily want to put their faith in Jesus, and so they say, well, 
What sign will you perform to show us that we ought to put our faith in you? Moses uh, gave us a sign. He, he fed us for 40 years. You've only fed us for one day, you know. Uh, maybe you ought to feed us some more. And if you feed us some more, like Moses fed us for 40 years, for a whole generation, maybe then uh, we'll put our trust in you. Uh, and to which Jesus responds, no, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven. It was my Father. Only he doesn't say it was my Father who gave it to you. He speaks in the present tense. It's my Father who is giving it to you, who gives you now bread from heaven, the true bread from heaven, which is uh, me. And so he calls them to faith in himself as the bread of life. The crowd uh, uh, says, uh, yeah, give us this bread. Uh, Jesus, Jesus wants uh, them to understand that they need him more than they needed the manna. And they need to ingest him more than they needed to ingest that manna. That manna perished, and those who, who ate it perished. But if you will ingest me, the true bread from heaven, you will have eternal life. Now, ingesting Jesus or uh, eating Jesus is a, a metaphor for having a, a close, personal relationship with Jesus. The... Uh, uh, invites us to, a, to, to know him in a very close and personal way, uh, to treat him as a person. You know, in this regard, the, uh, the Christian religion is, is different than, than all the religions of the world, both the religions of the West and the religions of the East. Christianity stands apart from them all. Uh, Western thought uh, focuses on the world of ideas. This goes all the way back to Aristotle, who said that uh, True reality is found in the realm of the ideal, that uh, a chair couldn't exist if there wasn't first the idea of chairness. And uh, the, the idea of chairness is ultimate reality. And that's where to find true meaning uh, is in the world of ideas. And this leads to the idea that, that life is, is fulfilled uh, by the study of philosophy and, and through education, through education and philosophy and science all these things, this is what will save the human race. This is what will lift us up. This is what will enable us to have a full and rich life if we get educated and if we master the philosophies of life. And, the, and, and the, uh, that's where we'll discover true meaning and life uh, through, through the world of ideas and education. Eastern religions, they, they take a different view. They're much more uh, mystical. They believe that uh, ultimate reality is an impersonal force that permeates everything, and the way to find fulfillment is to empty your mind of all thought. You know, empty your mind of all thought and uh, uh, chant a, a mantra that is a meaningless syllable so that you're not thinking any rational thought. Uh, Western religion is all about rationalism and, and thinking and so forth. But no, we want to empty our minds and, and so uh, get in touch with the ultimate impersonal force and have some kind of mystical experience. So ultimate reality is either in the world of ideas or in the world of, of mystical uh, impersonal force. Christianity comes along and says, no, ultimate reality is found in a person. 
in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you're to discover the meaning of your life, you can only discover it when you know this person. And you have to treat him as a person. You have to talk to him the way you talk to other people. He is a person, and so you you have to talk to him. That's what prayer is all about. And you have to listen to what he has to say. He's giving us his word. He speaks to us through the Bible. And, uh, And because of who this person is, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, that he has redeemed us by his precious blood and uh, purchased us for himself, we not only need to speak to him and listen to him, we need to obey him in gratitude for all that he has done for us. He has earned the right to be our Lord and Master and, uh, and to require of us that we no longer live for self but live for him personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not a mystical, warm, fuzzy feeling about Christ the way it is sometimes uh, portrayed in uh, evangelical circles where you just uh, uh, try to uh, get yourself in the mood of uh, feeling all lovey-dovey about Jesus. Uh, A personal relationship means talking to him, listening to him, and obeying him because of who he is and what he has done for us to change metaphors our relationship with jesus uh, is to be that of a bride and a groom he is the groom we are his bride and the relationship is a love relationship sadly too many people who go to church have only a business relationship with jesus uh, uh, an exchange of goods and services I'll do this for Jesus, and uh, then I expect Jesus to do such and such for me. I'll go to church, and and then he'll help me earn a lot of money uh, during the week. Uh, I go to church or read my Bible, and and he uh, makes sure my bank account grows uh, from week to week, and and that I never get uh, seriously ill and so forth. It's an exchange of goods and services. I do this for him, and he does that for me. When a husband and wife are truly in love, they, they just delight to be together. They delight to express their love. They, they delight to serve one another, not doing it in order to get something in return. But when they do get something in return, they, they receive it as a gracious gift, not something that was owed to them. And did you, did you give me enough? Uh, did, did you pay a full benefit that I invested in you? No. You give, and you give selflessly, and you receive as a gift of grace. That's what a loving relationship with Jesus is all about. That's the relationship you and I need. And Jesus is saying, I can give you that relationship. You find that in me, and it will be a relationship that will last forever, an eternal life, eternally saying, this, this is living. This is what God meant it to be. We were created in his image to know him, to love him, to serve him, to be with him, to experience a loving, intimate relationship with him, a personal relationship of talking, listening, and serving him in gratitude for what he has done, loving him the way a bride loves her bridegroom. That's the relationship you need. 
And that's the relationship you should search for every day. Searching for Jesus. This crowd was searching for Jesus, but they were searching for the wrong reason. Christ wants people to search for him and to find him. He's not hard to find if you will come seeking the kind of relationship, seeking him as he intends. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the bread of life, the bread that gives us eternal life, quality of life, where we we live in in joy and in peace and in, in fellowship, sustained by that love even in earthly trials and tribulations. We pray, O Lord, that we would seek that and seek it from Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.